Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. We find out how the fundamental parts of our brains work and what makes them fire. Now, neurons are one of the key cells inside our brain, and they do most of the heavy lifting for all of the things that get you to being here today. But how do they work? How can we get a better understanding of them? And what can we do to help treat neurological diseases which damage their function? When you stop and think about it, you are a walking computer. And that what's driving that computer inside your head, if you really think about it, is a combination of cells, all firing, responding to different stimuli, sending electrical pulses, and basically communicating with each other. And that's what makes up your central nervous system, and also your brain, as part of that. But what is actually going on at the root level there? Well, inside our brains and our nervous system, we have things called neurons. And neurons' jobs are basically to be like the single cells that make up an overall brain. A neuron has its own little pieces, a nucleus core, the body of the cell called a soma, and then some branches, the axons and dendrites that extend out. And all these neutrons together pass along information to each other, and they communicate. And it's that communication and sending of signals, sometimes activated by light, sound, muscle constriction, electricity, chemical responses. That's what defines all of our thought processes and patterns. And from these very simple building blocks, we can assemble incredibly complicated thoughts and functions. That is how our nervous system works. It's a bit like the individual bits or transistors inside a computer. Maybe even small switches that pass back and forward information builds up to form the fantastic computer that you're using to listen to my voice right now. In much the same way, the biological basis of the brain is relatively simple or at least it appears so, but actually understanding how it works, the mechanisms that led to propagation of information, how it develops and passes along that information, is incredibly complicated. And this week we're going to be looking at three different stories that dive deep into the science of our brains. Not so much thoughts and feelings and psychology, but more physical mechanics of how our brains function, and how information gets passed along, and what we can do to help grow, study, and even repair different parts of the brain, which for people with some diseases, neurological diseases like Parkinson disease, it can be incredibly helpful to try and repair them. So by diving into the science of the brain, we can learn a lot about how not only our brains, but anything else that has a brain functions, and also ways we can better harness that information to help treat people with devastating neurological conditions. The best way to truly understand something is to take it apart, understand how each little piece works, put it back together again, and therefore you can learn a lot more about the bigger picture. And that's what researchers at the Institute of Industrial Science at the University of Tokyo have been doing. They've been pulling apart the brain cells, or rather neurons, down to a fundamental level and trying to study them on their own to hopefully give us an insight into how these neurological connections work inside our minds. But to do that first, you have to go down to a really, really, really basic level. Individual neurons talking to each other. Now, inside our heads, inside our brains, 
there's a big swath, a sea of neurons that are all interconnected in a huge web or mesh. If you imagine or have seen any visuals of brains with neurons all linked together in a big messy spiderweb type situation with flashes and pulses of the synapses transmitting information between them, that is basically what's going on inside our brain. The problem is, if you want to try and study how a neuron interacts with other neurons, that's incredibly difficult. Trying to trace through a spiderweb is incredibly hard. Now, when we grow neurons in a lab, in vitro, or basically in a test tube or petri dish, it's very, very difficult to get them to not form that incredibly complicated spiderweb of neuron interconnection. All the axons and dendrites of each neuron, which is, so the neuron itself has a soma, the cell body, which is the core of it where the nucleus lives. And then branching out from it are these dendrites and axons. And those dendrites and axons are how they branch out to each other, connect and send information. But the problem is, if you want to study just one and look at a single information pathway or exchange, it's incredibly, incredibly difficult to do naturally because naturally they just grow in this complicated web. So what do you do? How can you encourage or force these neurons to actually grow in a simple way so you can study them? You actually do want it to connect to other things. That's what you're actually trying to study, this exchange of information. But you wanted to do it in a way where you can look at just one exchange, not thousands. So that's where these researchers from the University of Tokyo had a great idea. Now, they have determined that through previous studies that normally, actually, neurons can respond to geometric shapes. And this is pretty fascinating, but it makes a little bit of sense. Now, we know that by having a sort of shape like a circle or a sphere or rectangle, we can sculpt or graft or mould a neuron to behave in a certain way. And that's incredibly useful. So, based on that idea, they took a circle with two little rectangles protruding from either side, got some specially developed neuron adhesive material, uh, put all that on the base plate of it, and then stuck individual neuron cells in the center, and the axon and dentite sort of radiated out to these little rectangles. And that sort of guided the way the neuron grew in such a way that now you have the core, the cell of the neuron in the middle, and the connecting points clearly in a safe place. You keep repeating this process, and you've got individual self-contained neurons that you can now connect and reconnect as you want to see fit. So they designed these microplates to be movable. And that's incredibly useful because they could move neurons to be right next to each other. And then they could test if they were able to transmit a signal. Now, neurons communicate to each other through the synapses. So they're basically specialized structures that let chemical messages or other signals, electrical pulses, travel from one neuron to the next. Now, the important part of these little microplate structures, grafting things that they made, is that this didn't stop the synapses from functioning. They were still able to have that gap between them that they need to spark and arc across. And so it didn't impede the normal neuron function. So now we've actually developed a really, really interesting mobile microplate where you can change the shape of these neural networks, physical, actual real neural networks, not the computer term, um, being generated and follow the transmission of information from one place to another. And now 
instead of relying on actual computer neural network concepts, we can build physical small simple neural network models down to the single cell resolution level. And that's incredible because before this was impossible. A lot of this work was led by lead investigator Shoji Takahuchi, who was very fundamental in sort of developing this microplating structure. And it does really open up new ways to connect and model and even build small neuron-based machines. There's some great research being done out of the University of Tokyo. We're going to turn from Japan to one of the most venerable universities in the world, in Europe at least, King's College in London. Now, researchers at King's College in London have been trying to piece together some fundamental parts of the brain. Not this time the communication pathway between neurons that was looked at in Japan, but rather the behaviours of two very important types of neurons. So we spoke about neurons before, but they come in different flavours and roles. Each different type of neuron has a different role to play in your brain and central nervous system. And inside the cerebral cortex, which is the largest region of the human brain, a lot of very important functions take place. It's responsible for really advanced abilities like learning, memory, future planning. The cerebral cortex is one of the main areas, basically, of the brain. So understanding how that works is incredibly important to understand the overall behavior of creatures like humans. Now, inside the cerebral cortex, it's made up of two different types of neurons, excitatory and inhibitory neurons. But for the sake of simplicity, we're going to use the language used by the paper published in Nature of go and no-go neurons. The excitatory are the go neurons, and the no-go neurons are the inhibitory neurons. Now, the excitatory go neurons, they basically process information that's coming in, and then they provide orders. Now, those orders are important. That tells the other neurons around them what to do. Now, inhibitory no-go neurons restrict the activity of the go neurons so that they you know, don't all fire at the same time. You can imagine if you've ever had a thousand people in a large room trying to talk to each other at once, it's a cacophony of noise. And that's what's happening if all of the go neurons all started firing at the same time. Now, the overfiring of these go neurons is the type of behavior we see in someone who has epilepsy. That's actually one of the things going on with someone who's suffering an epileptic fit. Now, while you, if you have too many of the no-go signals, everyone just shushing and not allowing anyone to talk, then that is basically the, is bad as overfiring because too many no-go signals actually causes cognitive problems. The neurons can't pass along information to each other and you lose the ability to transmit signals that might be important for learning, comprehension, memory, and ability to future plan. So striking the balance between number of go signals and no go signals is incredibly important and that's what these researchers from King's College in London have been trying to study. Now they're working under Professor Oscar Marin from the Centre of Development of Neurology at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience, IOPPN. 
And what they were trying to do is study the balance between go and no-go neurons in the brains of mice, the developing brains of mice. Now, what we found through other studies is that the ratio of these two cell types is actually pretty similar between mammals. So that's why mice trials are actually incredibly useful and can apply to humans in this aspect. Now, one of the reasons why human brains have been able to be built and expand and grow is through this beautiful mechanism of signals between the go and no-go parts of our brains in our cerebral cortex. So by understanding the behavior of these different neuron types in our cerebral cortex, we can learn how mammals have evolved this complex thinking process and how humans have expanded on it. Now, by manipulating the brain cells of the mice during a critical phase of embryonic development, they, researchers found that they could adjust the number of no-go neurons as well as adjusting the number of go neurons. So they, they could tweak the levels or the ratio between them. Now, there's a great quote from the co-lead author of the study, Dr. Kinga Bersani from the Marin Laboratory. Her statement goes, if we imagine brain activity as a conversation, neurons have to be connected to each other in order to talk. During the first two weeks after birth, no-go neurons can sense if they're alone and are programmed to die if they can't find go neurons that they're willing to talk to. And that's pretty important because a no-go neuron has no purpose if there's no other neurons around it. You can't tell people to be quiet and not talk if there's nobody else in the room. So basically, no-go neurons are programmed to die off if they find that they're in an empty room. That makes sense from a functional perspective. But these go neurons, they can save their no-go cousins from death by blocking the function of a certain protein called p And that's very, very interesting because these go neurons can find one of the slowly dying, deactivating no-go neurons and say, no, actually, no, you're not alone. Come on, let's chat. And that can revive these no-go neurons. Now, it seems silly because go and no-go actually have really important roles to play inside our brain. You need both and you need a good balance of them. So having just one on the type on its own is not good. Now, mutations in the gene coding for P10 have previously been strongly linked to things like autism, suggesting that when P10 is not functioning properly enough, not enough no-go neurons die, tipping the balance of cell types from one way to the other, causing problems in the information processing, which is seen on some people on the autism spectrum. So this is a pretty important study. As fellow author Dr. Fong Quan Wong states, as well as finding a biological process that is fundamental to brain development, our findings suggest that disruptions to this process may be fundamental to the neurodevelopmental disorders. Understanding how the balances of cell types in the cerebral cortex is disrupted in conditions like autism and epilepsy could potentially lead to new treatments. And I think that's a key outcome here. If we understand how the brain works, understand how inside our cerebral cortex we keep a balance between inhibitory signals and proprietary signals, go no-go neurons, and keep this conversation going in a nice balanced way, we can help treat, potentially, conditions like autism and epilepsy, where that balance has gone out of whack, either too noisy or too quiet. And we've managed to achieve this study by going deep into looking at our mammalian cousins' brains and understanding how they work. And it goes to show the power of these kind of trials. 
and how we can learn from that and apply it to human life. This is some great work being done at the King's College in London. suffer from a neurological condition like Parkinson's disease, one of the treatments that we've had for over 25 years is called deep brain stimulation. This is basically where we go in and start through the use of an electrode, a thin wire into the brain, pulsing electricity through into a region of the brain called the basal ganglia, basically to help treat the symptoms of Parkinson's. And this firing of these neurons manually basically is really really useful to help treat it but the problem is it can lead to unwanted side effects and requires constant tweaking and reprogramming by a trained clinician now a new bit of research out of the university of california san francisco and published in the journal of neuroengineering describes a new type of device which was trialed on two patients with parkinson and basically they received a fully implanted so not requiring external programming anymore one that basically lives inside the brain fully and it has a the same type of deep brain stimulation thing but where it differs from traditional devices is, is that it monitors and modulates the brain activity basically it senses using a small electrode implanted in the primary motor cortex which is the part that of the brain that defines movement and then uses signals from this electrode, feds it into a small computer program embedded inside the device, and determines whether or not they actually need to stimulate the brain. So instead of just firing all the time, or with some preset pattern, it actually watches and looks for things going on inside other areas of the brain, and says, no, actually, it's not quite working right, I just need to give it a little kick now. And so they taught the program to recognise a pattern of brain activity, which is typically associated with dyskinesia, which is basically uncontrolled movements that are one of the side effects of deep brain stimulation and Parkinson's disease. And they used it to basically guide the brain to back to normal brain activity. So you don't end up with these random movements, which is one of the unfortunate aspects of Parkinson's and some Parkinson treatments. Now, the short-term study wasn't that long. It was mostly to check if this idea was feasible to see if you could use it to help people overcome movement impediments with Parkinson's. But it was actually reasonably effective. Now, because it's not firing the entire time, it's actually not using very much power. It saves about 40% compared to the normal uh, electrode methods, and it only fires over short periods of time. But it's a good first step. And hopefully, treatments like this will help people into the future with targeted and responsive methods to help treat neurological diseases caused by misfirings of, of neurons. This is some great research being done out of the University of California, San Francisco. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From making the right balance between go and no-go signals to making sure we understand just how a single pathway of neuron communication goes, we found out a lot about how the brain works and what we can do to help improve it. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.